Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to this, the latest in the LSE European Institute ACPO Perspectives on Europe series. Uh, I am Damien Chalmers, head of the European Institute here at LSE, and it's a great pleasure to have you all here. Today we are honoured to have Dr Thomas Miro, President of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, talking on victors of survivors, the emerging economies and the economic crisis. And I would say it's a pleasure to have Dr. Miro here, not just by virtue of his position, but after, I have to say, after the tragic events that we've seen in Greece today, uh, that have emerged obviously from the unfolding financial and public sector crisis that's taking pl place there. As an academic, there's a little bit of having seen elements of this before as an LSE academic. A year ago, as the, if you like, the financial crisis began to unfold, we had talks by Hungarian and Serbian political figures, which sort of presaged this as a little way, just in the way that many EU economies fear the Greek crisis might presage economies in their own uh, crisis. So this is a talk as much about what the emerging economies can t tell us as about the emerging economies themselves. Now, Dr. Mirror. I can't think of anyone better place to talk about this, not just because of the position he occupies, but because of his experience. Pleased to say he had an academic position. He started off doing a doctorate at the University of Bonn. But just about every dimension of public, commercial, and financial life he's occupied senior positions in. He's worked for international organizations. He's held senior office at both the federal and land level in Germany. He's held senior positions in major German and non-German banks and positions in German industry. He has also advised the Commission, most notably with the well-known Koch Report. It's an absolute pleasure to have him. He will be talking for about half an hour and then taking questions. I hope you'll warmly welcome him to the stage. Thank you, Professor Chalmers, for this very nice introduction on what is indeed a special day, probably, uh, which um, we probably all have uh, some difficulties to understand in its dimension. Uh, I at least find it difficult to, to read if this event we have witnessed today in Athens is something which um, is unfortunate, but um, more or less confined to a small group of people, or whether it could indicate some more comprehensive um, events in, in, in this country. Uh, it's an honor for me to address you again today, again because I had the privilege to be at LSE a year ago. Our subject is how the emerging economies have been affected by the global, global financial crisis, how they are dealing with this challenge, and what lessons we can learn. Allow me to start with one word about the EBRD itself. The EBRD invests and works in Central, Eastern, and Southeastern Europe, Russia, Ukraine, the Caucasus, and Central Asia. My comments will therefore focus on this region, which I would call emerging Europe for simplicity. After the demise of communism, these countries embarked on the transition from state-run to market-based economies. The growing integration into the global economy enabled the countries to expand strongly and brought significant progress in raising living standards. This integration rested on three main pillars. One, trade integration into world economy. Two, financial integration, particularly with Western Europe and three, institutional development and integration, in many cases with the EU accession process as an anchor. 
As a result of trade integration, Western Europe became the most important market for exports from the EBRD region, be it natural resources, especially oil and gas, or products and services. Financial integration led to a massive inflow of foreign direct investment and capital into the region. The countries offered many attractive prospects for Western investors. Competitive labor costs, favorable tax codes, and high pent-up domestic demand. Western banks expanded rapidly and became the dominant players in many emerging European markets. When the financial crisis started in the United States in 2007 and later reached Western Europe, many economies in emerging Europe at first demonstrated remarkable resilience. However, in the fourth quarter of 2008, the region succumbed to huge external pressure and suffered the worst decline in output since the beginning of the transition process. As a consequence, we recorded a slump in GDP of about 6% in the 29 countries where the EBRD invests in 2009. The crisis hit emerging Europe particularly hard because it exposed imbalances which had piled up in the previous period of rapid growth. These had either not been detected or not been dealt with. They had either been overlooked or underestimated during the period of rapid growth. But they were brought to light very clearly when the global economic climate radically deteriorated. Those imbalances can be identified in at least four areas. One, at a macroeconomic level, with widening external deficits, extraordinary credit booms, and rapidly rising private debt, much of it denominated in foreign currencies. Two, at a sectoral level, with the expansion of non-tradables, in particular the construction and property sectors, far outpacing growth in manufacturing in the boom years. Three, at a regional level, with, with widening gaps between booming and stagnant regions, and an uneven distribution of growth within countries. And fourth and most significant of all, financial integration was often outpacing the institutional ability to manage it. Importantly, however, and this refers directly to the question you have put to me today, victims or survivors, these imbalances were not equally present in all countries in our region. Indeed, some countries largely managed to avoid them, notably some countries in Central Europe. This was the consequence of regulatory institutions that discouraged credit booms and foreign currency lending and counter-cyclical monetary and fiscal policy frameworks. These softened the blow from the crisis through several channels. More liquid banking systems, smaller external and fiscal financing needs, and more solvent households and enterprises. In addition, sound fiscal management provided governments with leeway for anti-cyclical measures. As a result, one can observe a clear correlation between output declines and pre-crisis imbalances. One country with relatively strong pre-crisis policies 
and low imbalances, Poland managed to avoid a recession altogether. For the most part, however, emerging Europe suffered dramatic output declines in the fourth quarter of 2008 and the first quarter of 2009. Subsequently, most economies have gradually started to stabilize and recover. We are now expecting a return to growth in most countries of emerging Europe in 2010. Since January, we have seen a recovery in much of the region, especially in commodity exporters and recipient countries of capital inflows. Several countries, including Turkey, Russia, Ukraine, now have better growth prospects than we had projected in early January, both as a result of returning capital inflows and as a result of rising commodity prices. Others, however, especially in southeastern Europe, show little sign of a sustained recovery. Although this group is likely to see positive growth in 2010, the recovery is likely to be slow and protracted as imbalances unwind, unemployment and non-performing loans level off at high levels and fiscal consolidation gathers pace. This leads us to the conclusion that the recovery among the countries of the region will be protracted and volatile. With the exception of important outliers like Russia or Turkey, growth will remain well below previous levels. And significantly, comparing the EBRD region to other emerging economies, the IMF's latest World Economic Outlook is predicting a multi-speed recovery in which Eastern Europe is clearly lagging behind. The main reason for this is that the key drivers of growth in the pre-crisis period, such as foreign direct investment and credit-driven investment and household consumption, will remain subdued. At the same time, external demand, especially in Western Europe, is far from what we have seen in the past, as these economies too are emerging only slowly from a deep recession with annual growth rates of somewhere between 1% and 2%. The crisis in Greece is a sharp reminder of the volatility of the external economic environment and repercussions cannot be excluded, especially in southeastern Europe. Finally, commodity exporters remain dependent on the volatility of world market prices. Taking all these circumstances into account, the state of the economies in the EBRD region, the global economic climate, and the fierce competition with other emerging markets, it is imperative that we move towards what we call a new growth agenda which will allow the countries of the EBRD region to enjoy better managed and safer, yet hopefully vigorous growth. This new growth agenda would be based on progress in three areas. First, we must prevent a return of macroeconomic and financial imbalances. This means strengthening macroeconomic frameworks in order to avoid excessive external deficits and unsustainable credit booms. Crucial in this respect is the development of local currency capital markets to create a domestic source of funding. Such markets would complement and eventually help to reduce 
the dependence on external sources of funding that proved so costly during the crisis. However, local currency markets can only flourish within a stable economic environment. For this reason, we are calling for a coordinated effort to establish a strengthened institutional framework that will provide an economic backdrop to encourage private domestic savings and a regulatory environment that deters excessive growth in credit, especially in foreign currencies. Second, there is a clear need to address bottlenecks that stand in the way of long-term competitive success. This includes strong competition policies and lower non-tariff trade barriers to foster the creation and growth of small and medium-sized enterprises. Much stronger education, particularly at the secondary level, but also at university level. Labor market institutions and social safety nets that slow rises in unit labor costs while limiting the individual risks associated with flexibility and infrastructure policies that address geographic imbalances. Third, many of these measures will cost money. The perhaps biggest challenge of all will be to undertake them in an environment of reduced fiscal means. To meet this challenge, countries in emerging Europe, as in, is the case in the West, will need to undertake fiscal reforms. But even with effective reforms, much of the funding of critical investment will need to come from the private sector. Private sector development, therefore, remains of crucial importance to the economic progress of emerging Europe's economies. Therefore, at the same time as developing this new growth agenda, we must not overlook or ignore the genuine successes of the transition period. Market-oriented reform and economic integration have been the main pillars for the rapid rises in living standards since the mid-1990s. What is needed is not the reversal of integration, but a reform agenda that leads to stronger integration combined with better risk mitigation. That's also the reason why we speak of a new growth agenda and not of a new growth model, because we think that basically the growth model was right, but it now needs to be refined and improved. Looking ahead and answering the second part of your question, victims or survivors, we have to be realistic because of the size of the challenges that lie before us. The global crisis has been so fundamental and deep that a simple return to the boom times is not an option. The status quo ante does not exist anymore. That said, we are also confident that these challenges will be overcome as lessons are drawn from the crisis and steps are implemented towards this new growth agenda that in the long run is both broader-based and more sustainable. This confidence is, not the least, based on the mature and resilient response of emerging Europe to the global crisis itself. The last 18 months have not only laid bare vulnerabilities and imbalances, but also demonstrated remarkable strength. The resilience to deal with enormous adjustment burdens without large-scale social 
and political upheaval. Very topical issue, I think, looking at South, Southern Europe today. The readiness to seek joint solutions with the involvement of the international community and to stick to agreements rigorously. The determination to see the crisis as an opportunity, for instance, to use it as a driver for the implementation of often overdue steps towards diversification and modernization. Finally, the level of integration achieved by emerging Europe in the last 20 years. This has anchored the region into wider Europe institutionally and in the minds of investors. Emerging Europe is not a destination for hot money, but regarded as a long-term investment for mutual benefit. More fundamentally, the growth potential in the region remains much higher than in the advanced economies of the West. The countries still have enormous needs, ranging from infrastructure investments to pent-up consumer demand. At the same time, the economic fundamentals in most cases are sound, and where they are not, the countries have embarked on ambitious adjustment programs. Task ahead is still large, but not insurmountable. Looking back at what has been achieved in the past 12 months gives us the confidence that emerging Europe can again be put on track. It is going to be a long and hard process, but today, more than ever, we believe that these countries will succeed in establishing sustainable and broad-based growth. Thank you for your attention. Thank, thank you very much for a wonderful, comprehensive, clear and thoughtful talk. We have quite a bit of time for questions. I think there are roving mics um, around. If um, people keep the questions quite short and remember that they're questions, that'd be great. It's a bit unfortunate we've got this podium in the way, otherwise we'd sit down. So anyone who would like to ask questions, please raise your hand. Can I, can, I, can I start with a question? Um, there are so many in the room. No, 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 but I want to start to, to be provocative. You, 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 you set a challenging but positive uh, agenda ahead. Uh, and in a sense, one always has to do that. But there are two things that, if I was in the region, would particularly concern me almost that are, a are going to be a struggle, irrespective of what uh, governments do. One is the price of commodity prices looks as if it's increasing, particularly oil. The second, and even more fundamental, is the price of capital is really going up. And how do these countries do, if that is the case, with their particular exposure to these things and perhaps their particular vulnerabilities? Well, in terms of, um, of commodities, uh, countries differ very much from each other because... Uh, some countries just live from commodities, uh, probably too much so, uh, like Russia, like uh, the Ukraine, like Kazakhstan, whereas other countries, of course, are commodity uh, importers. So the situation will be, will, will be very difficult. M my sense is, uh, to some degree, they are both at risk because... Uh, these high prices for commodities make it uh, tempting to stick to an economy that is commodity reliant and make it difficult to attract capital and skills to other areas, which a country like Russia should desperately do. And of course, for those who have to pay for commodities, it's the price uh, issue that uh, you have alluded to for them, it's certainly to add value to their production chains, uh, to reduce capital costs. 
and to invest into uh, human resources, for instance, in order to mitigate uh, the effect of commodity prices. In terms of capital price, yes, this is an issue. It's an issue for them as probably it is for anybody else. Uh, this is why I also mention that they should not only benchmark themselves against Western Europe, but also benchmark themselves against other emerging markets that might be in a better position currently to attract scarce capital like East Asia, like the Middle East, like probably also Latin America. So in so far, the competition for capital resources is much more difficult than it used to be up to 2008. That is also one of the basics why we say at least the bigger countries should try to build up stronger local capital markets so to be somewhat less dependent on foreign investments than they used to be. Thank you very much. Other questions? Lady, oh, lady over there. If you could stand, that'd be great. Hi, thank you for your talk. You mentioned that Eastern Europe or emerging Europe uh, now more than ever is integrated with the rest of Europe. Um, many of these countries have export-led growth models, and given the turbulence in Western Europe, their main export market and main source of foreign capital. Um, you mentioned that you believe the growth model is working, but how vulnerable are these countries given that they're so dependent on export-led growth? Well, I, I said so in terms of the growth model because the growth model is about integration in trade terms, in capital terms, and I do believe that there's no convincing alternative to that. But um, indeed, yes, um, those, many of those countries are dependent on uh, the demand of uh, uh, the European Union especially. And uh, as long as we will see sluggish growth there, it will have an impact on, on, on these countries. And comes on top that some Central European countries are focusing on some very few export lines, like for instance car assembly, um, which take a country like, like Slovakia, for instance, make them extremely dependent on the health of the uh, car industry and the car demand in, in, in Western Europe. So that's the reason why we say um, also the advanced, more advanced economies in, in Central Europe need to, to look for more diversification, to look for trespassing the uh, threshold of just uh, assembly lines to more value added to include research centers and, and this kind of, of, of features. Um, and so far, yes, there is a, a, a strong interface. Is there any alternative to this? Probably there could be some more regional uh, cooperation and, and, and trade links uh, than, than exist up to now, especially in, in, in a region where uh, 20 or 30 years ago, there was one country like Yugoslavia, and now uh, a whole bunch of countries with, with a very bad infrastructure uh, among them, and in, not only in, in, in traffic terms, but also, for instance, in terms of, of energy supply. And not very many brands being built up uh, that are known in, in, in more than one or two countries of the region. So regional cooperation certainly is also uh, an issue, but all in all, I, I, I do believe that there is no true alternative for most of these countries, many of them with a population of 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, than to integrate 
into the big European market. More, more questions? Sort of difficult peering around. Morris. Thanks very much. Uh, Morris Fraser, LSE European Institute. Um, I wondered if you just wanted like to say something about your use of the term emerging Europe, because clearly as, as the years have gone by and the EBRD's focus has moved steadily eastwards, it starts stretching the term uh, into more of an idea than the conventional geopolitical definition. Um, I seem to recall, uh, I think it was about eight or nine years ago, the then president of Kyrgyzstan delivering a, a, a very long uh, speech, almost standing on the Chinese border, talking about the whole speech was devoted to Kyrgyzstan's European vocation. I imagine it matters quite a lot to your countries of operation to be thought of as part of an extended European family. Um, I hope it's not an entirely pedantic question, just about nomenclature. You use the term uh, Europe, and that's a, an act of, deliberate act of policy, I imagine. Well, um, I, I would be basically say, with all due respect to the then president, that, um, that Kyrgyzstan is not part of Europe, but part of Central Asia. Uh, and so are uh, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Turkmenistan and, and Kazakhstan. Um, notwithstanding this, I think they are an extremely important subregion, uh, important in terms of uh, geopolitics, uh, looking at their southern neighbor neighbors being Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iran, uh, important in terms of a kind of crossroad of, of Russia, uh, China, uh, Europe, and, and the Americans also being very interested in that, in that region. Um, so I, I would say, um, Europe, the European Union, uh, was very well advised, I think, in 2007 to start a Central Asia strategy and to engage in this. But I think it would overstretch um, to just uh, redefine them as a larger part uh, of Europe. Whereas, of course, there are truly European countries like Belarus or Moldova or the Ukraine, uh, which are elementary parts of, 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 of Europe, but in political terms, uh, in, a, in a not very clearly way anchored uh, in, in, in European or, or other institutions. So I think um, this is not, not a question of, of definition, but um, if EBRD could, um, could contribute to uh, develop together with more important players than we are uh, a mid-term or long-term perspective uh, for where the place within Europe is for those countries. <coughs> that would be extremely valuable, not to speak of uh, uh, the Balkans, uh, which I think uh, in total need to be part of the European Union in a foreseeable future. One more questions. My lady there. Yulia Wimitina, European University at St. Petersburg. Uh, you spoke about new growth agenda, and uh, this is, uh, as far as I understood, basically about continuing reforms and making institutional reforms, but also about changing the attitudes of people in these countries. For example, to form uh, local currency markets, you have to create trust in local financial institutions. Do you think that these countries possess incentives to to go to these reforms, and are they capable of, of these reforms? Thank you. Yes, basically I do think they are capable of these reforms. Um, of course, it's, it's, it's always a question of incentives and, and rewards. 
Um, if you feel that there is a stable system of uh, well-regulated banks, uh, not taking too many risks, having uh, prudent uh, loan-to-deposit ratios, um, uh, if, you, if you see uh, uh, insurances um, acting in, 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 in as, as long-term investors uh, so that um, you, you build up trust in their ability to fund you uh, for, for your pension, um, then you probably would be happy to, to invest. Of course, uh, if, if this does not happen, if regulation is weak, if there is corruption, if, uh, if uh, insurances are not well run, if there's bad corporate governance structures uh, and so on and so forth, all of this exists as we know, uh, then probably people will, uh, would rather say um, uh, it might be safer to, put, to, to convert my local uh, money into Swiss franc or euro or British pound or whatever and, uh, and invest uh, elsewhere or, or just have, this, uh, have it under the atlas. Thank you. Gent gentleman there. <coughs> Thank you very much. Uh, certainly a crucial question. Um, first of all, we cannot testify that the major Western banks have withdrawn great amounts of capital and liquidity from the countries. We feared that this could happen at a certain time, but we think that out of a very intense cooperation between home and host authorities, international financial institutions like ours, and the banks themselves looking at future growth perspectives, these banks behaved very well. Having said this, it certainly holds true that it's good to have kind of diversified and mixed market with foreign players and internal players. What probably is much more difficult to achieve in very small countries than in bigger ones. Um, I think we, we, we have to be very careful with this issue because the, the, the striving for deeper capital, local capital markets must not mean any deterring of foreign investors and foreign banks to invest into those countries. Uh, many of, 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 of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe would be just too, too small to build up robust and resilient banks of their own. So it's, it's, it's a question of balance and, um, and of course it's also a question of assuming responsibilities when, when times are difficult. But um, these 12 systemically important Western banks that are engaged in the region and that we have identified the Unicredits, Intesa, Société Générale, Banque Nationale Paribas, and, and, and uh, the Austrian banks, the Swedish banks in, in, in the Baltics, have behaved rather well. Certainly not only because uh, they 
uh, were invited to do so and that were supported and encouraged, but certainly also because they exactly knew that if they would stay in difficult times, they would have new growth prospects once the crisis will be over. There was a lady who passed me a question a little bit. Well, there were a number of questions. Part, I don't know if you want to ask some of your questions. Uh, sorry? Uh, they're rather long. I think the best thing is normally we take all the questions from the floor. So uh, I can hand it back to you, but uh, it is long. So if you could, uh, a truncated version would be fantastic if you want to do that. The second half. You want about. Well. Do you want the question about Goldman Sachs or about the credit rating it? Okay. There are three questions, and I will, uh, at the risk of distorting the, uh, uh, the questions asked, I will shorten them that the lady passed on. The first relates to the role of the credit rating agencies in the current uh, Greek crisis, and in particular where they got their information from, and, well, that's the question asked really who was behind the information and how the process was decided. The second. Uh, the, the first two questions really relate to that, put crudely, um, and relate a little bit also to the legitimacy and role of credit rating agencies in the current crisis. The last question relates more, uh, more specifically to the role of Goldman Sachs and what it knew about the deficit of the Greek government, and I don't know if you want to comment at all on that. Well, in terms of the, the, the credit, credit rating agencies, um, some big constituencies, as you know, have embarked on some more regulations, so has the European uh, Union. Um, to which degree this will really have an impact and change uh, the business model remains to be seen. Um, I, I, I think basically uh, we should not put too much blame now on the on the rating agencies. I mean, I, it, it certainly is some sometimes annoying, and and sometimes uh, it's it's inconvenient, so to speak, because they make things more difficult. But um, but they are not at the root of the problem. I have to say. I mean, we we knew for quite a while that there have been unsustainable situations in some countries and that uh, it would not go, go on and on. And um, so, uh, for instance, I, 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 would be, I would be happy to see more actors on that scene. But um, there had already been an attempt to create a kind of public uh, credit rating agency uh, in the frame of the European Union. It was not particularly successful. So um, I think, yes, they should be well regulated, especially in terms of uh, prohibiting uh, conflicts of interest. But um, I would say, basically, the problems we, we are facing are not due to uh, the credit uh, rating agencies, but to the perception uh, of um, players, not only, but actors in the capital markets. And they often, as we see, don't only look at numbers, but also look at uh, the amount of trust in the ability of a country and of its government to cope with the problems, as we have seen with Ireland, for instance, in, which is in numbers compar comparable to Greece, but in which the ability to come to an austerity program is obviously bigger than in many other countries uh, in Europe. On the role of Goldman Sachs, I have not very much to say. I have uh, to admit, uh, you will have read uh, the same uh, reports on this uh, than, than, than I have done. It will be an issue before court, probably. So um, I, I would ask for your understanding that uh, I cannot comment on the concrete uh, allegations or case, just to say that uh, probably many of you will know that uh, indeed banks, not only Goldman Sachs, 
are of course involved in uh, the restructuring and and the uh, preparation of of uh, products that make it easier for sovereigns uh, to sell their, their their bonds. So um, it's probably not just an issue of uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, but it's a wider issue and you now need to look exactly what is legitimate and, and where it might uh, not be uh, legitimate in, in these terms. And uh, as I said, on the, on the concrete uh, case which had been alleged um, by, by SEC, I, th I think we need to, to see what the court case will, um, will bring to surface and, and who in the end will have the better arguments, SEC or, or Goldman Sachs. Madam, I always feel I truncated a story. I don't know if you want a follow-up question in the light of that. No. Other, other questions? A couple. Um, yes, we haven't had many from the centre. Just take those gentlemen's first. Uh, okay. mic. Hello, uh, thank you for following your talk. Mathieu Filippo for a student at the LSE. Um, the green energy is, all, I mean, is usually seen as a potential source of growth, at least in, in the European Union. And I was wondering to what extent it is also true for, for the EBRD's region. Thank you. Well, I, I think I, I, I couldn't elaborate this um, tonight, but energy energy consumption, energy waste is one of the heaviest burdens as a legacy of the Soviet regime on all of these countries. Uh, they have extremely old-fashioned power generation plants, totally insufficient power grids, and an unconceivable amount of waste in the consumption of energy, be it in manufacturing, be it in housing. So uh, the first thing to say is all these countries, all, will have an incredible amount of investments to make in order to renew the whole value chain of power generation to power consumption and it will cost them tremendous amounts of money. And um, if you remember this, this tragic event in eastern Siberia uh, with the hydropower plant in September last year, uh, it, was, it was not only a tragedy because I think 70 people lost their lives, but uh, the Russian authorities, including the Russian Prime Minister, realized how damaged the stock of power generation in the country really is and what it will need to fix this problem. And having said this, it of course means uh, a huge challenge in terms of climate change mitigation but it also means a huge challenge in terms of improving cost competitiveness. And indeed, there are many countries with big opportunities in renewables. Um, if you take a country like Georgia, for instance, uh, Georgia is striving to be one of the most important hydropower generating countries in the world. Um, for this, it needs to uh, invest into grids, which we are uh, part of, uh, because it would make sense to build up huge capacities in hydropower generation if they could not export uh, energy then to neighbors like Armenia or Turkey or uh, Azerbaijan or whatever. Russia wants the, the problems, the political problems would be, would be solved. Um, in other parts of, of the region, there are other renewables like wind, 
We have invested in Turkey, not only, but also in Bulgaria and Poland, in uh, wind power plants. Um, there is not very much in solar up to now. Maybe it will come. Um, there's a bit of biomass, but the prevailing certainly in the region in re terms of renewables is, is hydropower and wind. And there indeed we see very big investment opportunities. There was a question just over there, just the gentleman there. Hi. I just wondered whether you uh, thought it would be a good idea for the countries in the European Union, in Eastern Europe, to um, adopt the euro as quickly as possible, if they fulfill the criteria, and then whether that would be a good idea for the euro if Poland comes in now. Well, this, this is, of course, a... a question which, which is now a bit more difficult to answer than, <laughs> than it, it would have been if we would have met a year ago. Um, my, my, my sense is, first of all, the Maastricht criteria should stay as they are. This means there has been a debate to lower the entry threshold and this was wrong, but now some have the idea of raising the threshold, and I think that this would be wrong too. Um, and I think it is indeed a good idea for any of the Central European countries that has not done so so far to embark on the road to be in the position to get member of the Eurozone. So to tackle debt issues, to look at inflation and uh, the other, uh, other measures. Um, Estonia probably is still willing to join very quickly and I think it's a good idea. And I think they would, will be able to do so in a sustainable way. Others probably look for a period of some more three, four years preparing for joining the Euro, but not asking for joining now. And this, of course, also relates to the fact that the EU Commission and the ECB would probably have no, I don't know, but I, I, I think no major difficulties to taking Estonia in the club which is a country of 1.5 million people, uh, but probably would see bigger problems to take one of the big ones uh, in, into the Eurozone. So if, if you have as many problems as uh, the Eurozone has uh, these days, then they probably would, would not actively look for, for some more members. But I hope it's, it's, um, the problems will be resolved, and yes, indeed, as is laid down in the accession treaties, uh, I do think that um, for economic and for political reasons, uh, it's the right way to, to choose. But um, we have to see how things unfold these months. Could I ask just a follow-up question for that? At the moment, the only way for a state to exit the euro is actually to exit the union, which has always struck me as uh, quite a take-it-or-leave-it option. Do you think facilities should be made for states to exit the euro if they and other states think it desirable? Well, I would have two answers on that. One is... Who would be able these days to submit a new European treaty to 27 countries with a realistic perspective of getting a consent? And two, being member of the Eurozone is not meant 
as a short-term choice. You get in, you have some troubles, you think twice, and you leave. And maybe, if you're better off, in two years you come back again. I think it really is a very deep political commitment to be part of it. Certainly, the necessary governance structure has not been fully established, so I rather would work on that. But I think in political terms, but also in terms of capital markets, wondering and maybe also speculating on exit strategies for countries would bring a lot of turbulences. More questions? The gentleman in the back, just over here. Just right at the way back there. As you know, the Turkish economy has survived quite well with all this turbulence of recent times. Do you think um, Turkey would be a worthy member of the Euro uh, club? Well, as, as we all know, the first question is whether Turkey will be a member of the European Union. Um, before discussing whether it should be a member of the Eurozone, um, basically, my, my sense is it has been promised to Turkey so often that uh, provided Turkey would find itself in a position to really stick to the European acquis, they should be member. But it would be a difficult step to take. Uh, it would mean that a lot of political leadership within Europe would be requested because nowadays if you would put this question as a referendum in Europe, you would get a very clear no. More, more questions? A couple more questions. Gentleman right to the back What is your opinion regarding the role played by the European Union in the Greek crisis? Well, I, I think um, it, was, it was not optimal. Um, because, because, first of all, uh, there would have been possibilities and necessities to prevent uh, certain developments that have led to the crisis. So the question, for instance, on uh, its growing delta in terms of cost competitiveness within the Eurozone has been addressed three, four years ago, but without any political impact. So this shouldn't have happened. So the first and big mistake is in the way obvious imbalances have not been treated adequately. And now within the crisis, I think that the European pride exceeded the European technical capacity to handle things. And it would have been wiser to uh, earlier call an institution in which the Europeans have a 30% share, which is headed by a former French finance minister, and which might not be as much a Washington Institute institution anymore as some in Europe have believed. Thank you. More, more questions? Lady just there. 
Um, how has the financial crisis impacted the role of the bank and the ability to finance projects given that the entities, the borrowing entities, need to meet certain criteria and that's more difficult in the, in the turbulent times? Uh, just the overall sort of role and division of the bank. Well, the EBRD was to some degree, I think, in a comparable situation as many international financial institutions before the crisis shareholders more and more looked at it in terms of do we still need you? Um, once the crisis occurred, this of course has quickly evaporated and shareholders just asking us to do as much as we could. Now the question will be how sustainable is this? Um, my sense is as everyone can witness the fragilities and, and the risks in the financial and economic world, uh, it will for quite a while uh, be persistent that shareholders say it's, it's, it's good to have you in place. That's in political terms. In economic terms, of course, as we are strongly invested in countries that took uh, hard hits, uh, we had, have taken losses uh, in 2008 and 2009, particularly through the downright of, of equity investments. Now equity investments were moving upwards. Uh, I hope uh, it, it, it will not be reversed again. So in, econ in economic terms, <coughs> that were also difficult times for us especially then to invest in some countries which look to be very fragile, like take a country like Ukraine uh, with a uh, minus 15 development in GDP terms and, and CDS spreads in, 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 in four-digit numbers at some time. Um, so to some degree, the, 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 the political stability and the political support of, of the bank is especially high if the economic risks are, are, are big and, and vice versa. Um, but I think uh, that, that the international community has also in so far learned a lesson that you rather take care of international financial institutions even if there may be times in which you think you don't need them that much. Thank you. We've got about five minutes left. Um, the, a couple of questions people have already asked, which I'll wrap them together. The gentleman there and then the gentleman there. Just to follow up, do you think there could be some kind of fiscal harmonization uh, among the Euro countries in future? I, I think it should, but I'm very, very skeptical about it. In my experience from, from attending uh, finance ministers' meeting uh, at uh, EU level was there is not one single issue as contentious as discussing tax regimes and not only tax rates, but bases, structure, anything, at the very moment when the expression tax is taken and put on the table, it gets immediately poisoned and contentious. Because everyone believes that uh, its own country has the best tax regime, is more competitive than others, is hiding certain rooms uh, to create some advantages. And uh, I mean, take the champion of European Union, Luxembourg, and the in-person Jean-Claude Juncker, but if it's about Texas, then um, he's rather clear in his advocacy of Luxembourg. <laughs> uh, there was a question from a gentleman over there. N not, not to speak about the UK in this context. <laughs> <laughs> Just another one. Um, I, 
just wondered, because um, you mentioned Georgia earlier, how do you actually manage that if two countries, you've got investments in go, go to war, and have you got any influence on, on such issues? Or? Well, it's, it's, it's of course a very sad experience to see that happening. In this concrete situation, many called on us, uh, literally, uh, to be very quick in helping, especially the Georgian banks, and probably the Georgian president and the Georgian prime minister, if they would here, would testify that they think uh, EBRD has literally saved the Georgian banks in autumn 2008. And I can only say that um, those projects, which need to get the consent of our uh, board of directors, got that support, including from Russia. So it's, it's a sad situation, it's a very difficult situation, but as long as you try to make clear that you don't take one side, that you uh, try to stay as objective as possible, and as you know, there are probably several truths on these events, and not only one. Um, it probably makes you still being able to, to, to act. Okay, thank you very much. I think this is probably a moment to wrap up. I'd like to say that tomorrow, this is a first, and I do apologise for it. I think I've chaired probably over 60 events at the LSE. It's the first where we forced the speaker to stand all the way and take the questions no there. And that's partly because of where the podium is. You've, you've done it wonderfully. Thank you very much. I can only apologise to you for that, and thank you for doing it so well. More, more substantively, uh, thank you for answering such a wide range of questions so comprehensively and so directly. Uh, it's a complex region which is challenging in every sense, uh, challenging intellectually and obviously faces many challenges. I think we've learned a lot in the last hour and a quarter. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you.